Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm pleased to say we have Jennifer Hall Witt on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Fashionable Acts, Opera and Elite Culture in London, 1780 to 1880. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Today we're talking with Jennifer Hall Witt <laughs> about her book, Fashionable Acts, Opera and Elite Culture in London, 1780 to 1880. I told Jennifer in the pre-interview that this was indeed a most impressive book, and it is. The amount of research that went into this is mind-boggling. Um, for anybody who is interested in opera and the history of opera, or I should say the history of music, particularly in uh, the, uh, a- I guess, the Anglo-speaking world um, or the English-speaking world, uh, th- this is a book that you will want to read, and I hope you, you go out and get it because it, it, as I say, is an extraordinarily impressive tome. Uh, so uh, I, I really enjoyed, jo- enjoyed reading it, and, and I think that a lot of people will too. Um, Jennifer, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, I grew up in Bedford Hills, New York, which is a small little town about an hour north of New York City, um, and um, grew up doing a lot of ballet, which is sort of the jumping off point of interest mm-hmm. for this project. Um, went to college, I did my undergraduate uh, at Northwestern, studied history, and it was there that I really got interested in cultural history um, and went to Yale for graduate school with the intent of becoming a cultural historian um, and studied there with Peter Gay and Linda Colley. Mm-hmm. And how did you land upon this particular topic? What, why, why a book about English opera? Well, I was interested in British cultural history and because of my sort of long experience doing ballet myself, I, um, when I first arrived at Yale, um, I did a research seminar with Peter Gay and decided to do it on the Romantic Ballet of the 1830s and 40s. And um, as I was doing the research for that project, um, it was very interesting to me that so many of the reviews of the ballet would be talking about members of the audience, you know, what mm-hmm. the Duke of Gloucester said to so-and-so across the way. And I thought, this is really strange. Why? Are they talking about members of the audience um, in a review? Um, and so that got me doing sort of more research um, into the topic, and I got really interested in why it was that there was this sort of fundamental transformation in the way that audiences behaved. Um, and the ballet at that time was performed after um, the opera. Um, so you'd go to the opera house. It was a very long evening, five or six hours, where you would listen to a full um, ballet or a full opera between the acts. There would be a short ballet divertissement. Um, and then after the opera, you would have a, a full ballet d'action, which is a ballet with um, um, a storyline. 
Um, and so, um, although my initial interest was in the ballet, quickly I realized that the story to tell was actually much more about the opera. Um, and it was the Italian opera house, um, which is where the romantic ballet performed. So that's sort of how I got, um, focused on Italian opera in London. Um, and as you can imagine, not very much had been written about it because most musicologists who wrote about Italian opera were focused on the composers, and so they wrote about the context in which the composers created their operas, which was in Italy. Um, so there really was not much in the 19th century anyway on Italian opera in London. There was quite a bit in the 18th century, but um, not much there in the 19th century, and so it was sort of this big open topic. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a terrific thing to find as a graduate yes. student. That is, yes. That's a really lucky thing to find. I was just writing about that, in fact, how hard it is to find that sort of thing. But anyway, it sounds like you did a terrific job. L- let me begin by setting the stage, so to say, and I did not mean that as a pun. Uh, how did opera get to London? Um. You know, that story is sort of, you know, predates when I actually start in the 1780s. It um, came to London um, in sort of bits and pieces in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. Um, the theater that became known as the King's Theater um, was built in 1704. Um, and there was, it was actually backed pretty strongly by a group of um, powerful Whig noblemen um, who helped to support the building of that theater. Um, and um, it was um, performed on a kind of somewhat shaky footing for the first um, 15 years or so. Um, But the um, British elite um, was known for doing what's called the Grand Tour. They would take these long tours of Europe, and so they, you know, as they traveled to different places and stayed in different places in Europe, they would hear, they would go to the theaters, they would, they heard the opera, and so it became this sort of interesting novelty um, to have in um, London, and so singers were, were brought over for short stints um, to perform this new um, uh, art form. Um, and then the, you know, sort of over time, the King's Theater by the 17-teens became the theater that was sort of regularly given the um, license to perform Italian opera. Um, And it was the only theater um, that was given that license. Um, And then in the 1720s, um, something called the Royal Academy of Music was formed, um, actually starting in 1719, Um, also backed again by a lot of powerful Whig noblemen, some Tories as well, um, who wanted to really, you know, put the full sort of backing of their wealth and also their social connections. They would often help through their connections on the continent, help recruit performers, um, and really started this sort of tradition that was pretty strong in the early sort of first four decades of the 18th century in which the nobility really strongly backed the opera and kind of helped to put it on kind of stable footing in London. Mm-hmm. So your book picks up a couple of decades later, that is um, a- after the uh, the, um, the building of the King's Theatre and then the, the Royal Academy um, in the uh, 1780s. If I'm in, is that right? The 1780s, yes. yes. 1780s. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you kind of, again, uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like to go to the opera in, say, 1780? Who was there? What did they do? How was the opera arranged? Um, I've been to the Lincoln Center, and I, I think I've even seen an opera there. Um, but I, I, I think it was very different, wasn't it? It was very different. Um, 
in the 1780s was the time when, for the first time, you had sort of a horseshoe circle of boxes that were built. Previously, there was just a, a very small number of boxes kind of on the sides of the theater and sort of on stage. Um, so there's something in the 1780s um, that, that made the opera much more of a kind of, much more suitable to being a sort of meeting place for members of the British elite. Um, and the, the 18th century is really the time when um, the court, the royal court, is having much less influence in sort of elite society, and instead something else arises that becomes known as sort of fashionable society or high society. Um, and sort of what I argue is that the opera really becomes a sort of meeting place for members of high society. So when they come into town for the London season, um, the London season was a sort of period from um, sometime in the winter uh, through June, it sort of changes in different time periods, but in the 1780s through June, um, where you had members of the aristocracy, the landed elite, basically came from their country estates um, to their London mansions and all lived in the same city. Um, and so the London season really becomes this way for the British elite to develop a sense of identity as a group. Um, and the opera really becomes its sort of central meeting place. Um, and so when people went to the opera, um, they subscribed for the season. They would they had sort of their box that they would sit in. Um, and usually it would have been t uh, one sort of uh, aristocratic woman who was the primary subscriber to that box. She was sort of the head subscriber. And she would invite who else got to subscribe to her box, usually another woman who would keep her company, and then four other men. Um, and those men were not actually expected to stay in the box. Um, it was very much of a social scene, and they were expected to leave the box and make visits to other boxes and to make room so that other men could come in and visit. Um, and so um, there was sort of a constant circulation, a sort of visiting that was going on during the opera itself. Um, and um, the leading kind of hostesses, social hostesses, political hostesses were there, um, some of the leading members of parliament, um, ministers were there. Um, sort of some of the diplomatic corps would have been there, although not as much as you would get in the mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. um, you had the kind of high-class prostitutes, um, some of whom had boxes at the opera. Um, and so the opera really became a place to um, meet and greet, to sort of assess who had come to town. Um, when you arrived in London for the season, you'd make an appearance at the opera and everybody knew that you were in town. Um, it was a place where sort of gossip was exchanged, social gossip about who was pregnant, um, gossip about kind of political developments. Um, and it was a place where because you knew whose boxes were whose, um, people sat in the same box from year to year. So you kind of, once you were there for a number of years, you pretty quickly figured out where everybody's box was. And so you could get all kinds of information about kind of changing social networks by paying close attention um, if you were in that world and in the know. Um, so, um, you know, one of the examples I give in the book, for instance, is um, in the 1790s, the Duchess of Gordon um, is having some financial difficulties. She can't come to London for the season. Uh, she's trying to save money. She stays on her country estate. Um, and so Lady, Lady Abercorn gets her box. Um, and so one of the people at the opera that season, Lady Charlotte Campbell, writes in a letter, um, you know, 
noticing that the um, Lady Abercorn has uh, the Duchess of Gordon's box um, and kind of makes the connection that she doesn't have the money to come to London for the season. She's, and so she that, that sort of insight is one that is gained just simply from watching kind of who's in a box. Um, and, you know, again, you know, people would pay attention to who the visitors were coming into a lady's box, which again told them something about kind of who her, um, who her social circle was made up of. Um, and the audience, it was not just about socializing in the 1780s. It was very much also that the audience cared about what was going on on stage. They were pretty actively engaged in the performance itself. So, you know, it's normal for us kind of showing respect for the performance by trying to stay as quiet as we can, not fidgeting around too much. Those were just not ideals that people had. It was... Um, uh, they saw themselves as having the authority and the right to very actively engage. And so if they didn't like what was going on on stage, they let that be known. If there were singers whose performances they hadn't been very happy with, they would actually sort of organize hissing campaigns ahead of time um, and would come with the explicit kind of idea of hissing um, one of the singers. Um, if they were unhappy about the management, about who they were hiring, um, they would instigate riots, which happened every few years. Um, and which sometimes were fairly destructive. They would actually throw their chairs out of their boxes. Um, sometimes instruments got destroyed. Um, in one riot in 1813, they actually took the muskets away from the guards who were there sort of to keep order in the theater. Um, they were very active in showing their... Um, approbation when they liked what was going on on stage. They would call for encores of songs that they liked, and the performer would have to sing it again. Um, and would usually, um, you know, sing it again in a way that they would do it in a slightly different way. So singers were always sort of ornamenting their arias, and they would, um, audiences were knowledgeable enough about singing technique that they would actually know what to listen for. And so they would listen in the repeat um, during the encore. How, you know, how would they do the kind of um, repeat section in a slightly different way? And so they were you know, quite attuned to parts of what was going on on stage. Um, and this is you know, completely different um, atmosphere from what we get when I end the book in 1880, um, when the audience was expected to be quiet. Um, they were expected to, you know, if they talk, talk in hushed tones. Um, the lights were no longer on in the auditorium the way they used to be. They were um, turned off. Um, and the audience was expected to kind of sit in silence and pay their respects to, you know, show their respect for what was going on on stage. Mm-hmm. And so the you know the original question I started with and what really fascinated me and got me into this project is why did it change? Um, yeah, and well, you know I was going to say about the former the early era era. Um, I guess this would be the the Georgian era. era mm-hmm. Is that what we call it? Mm-hmm. The Georgian era. Um, it sounds for all the world like uh, places I used to go in high school and college where they had uh, it was bars that had bands. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I I can, yeah. I can even remember. Uh, Watching a band in late, early college, late high school, and we, they played a song, and we demanded that they play it again. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm, whole audience yeah. basically, you mm-hmm. have to play that again, and they stopped and they played it again. And so, mm-hmm, yeah, and mm-hmm. it was rowdy. You know, it was very rowdy. 
Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, there's some parallels also to kind of jazz music and the kind of expectation we have that there's improvisation going on. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that kind of an attitude towards the music itself. Um, and I think the atmosphere is a little bit like kind of the big sporting events, mm-hmm. too, you know, where corporate executives have their boxes oh, yeah. where they kind of meet and conduct, you know, business to some degree, which is, you know, combined with sort of pleasure. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I argue is that, um, in the beginning part of my period, the opera really was very interconnected with the broader sort of social and political lives of the British elite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't know anything about those those sports boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't either. But <laughs> I've heard I've heard stories. Yeah, I've heard stories. Um, who else was in the theater in the? Uh, Again, the Hanoverian period, this earlier period? Because you say there were elites there and they were in their boxes. Were there other areas? Was there a pit as in yeah, Shakespearean so, and that kind of right. stuff? Right. So there's the horseshoe tier of boxes, which is sort of five tiers of boxes. Um, and then there was the pit area, which um, were simply rows of benches. And you could not buy a seat ahead of time. There was no reserved seats. Um, you would just kind of, you know, bought a ticket to enter into the theater and... Um, and, you know, would try to find a place on one of the pit benches. Um, and there was a, an aisle down the center and kind of in the back of the auditorium, the back of the pit, um, that became known as um, the Fops Alley or Fops Alley. Um, and it was a place where um, essentially the box, if you had a ticket to one of the boxes, it gave you the right to circulate through the whole theater. And so men would not only be circulating, making visits to ladies' boxes, but they would also come down to the pit where they would mingle with each other. So you had this kind of homosocial environment for the fashionable men in Fops Alley, and they would um, sort of mingle with each other um, and banter with each other. Um, and then, you know, in the pit region itself, you had um, you know, fairly well-to-do members of the middle classes um, or anyone who did, wasn't a subscriber. Um, it could be, you know, members of the gentry who would come into London for a week who would go to the opera and they would get a seat in the pit. Um, and then you had the gallery, which was sort of up high, back up, sort of above the boxes. Um, and that would be an area that was usually not filled. Um, that would be an area that would be more affordable for a middle class person because to sit in the pit of the boxes, you had to be in full dress. Um, and so that was expensive um, to have the right kind of formal dress to be able to go to the opera. So the gallery would be a place that um, if you couldn't really afford that, but you were um, interested in music, um, you were interested in the arts, you might make your way up to the gallery. Um, it was also a place where servants of the elite would sit until the end of the opera when they would then be able to come back down and um, do whatever they did to service um, members of the elite as they left the theater. Mm-hmm. These were long affairs, as you say. Was food served? Did they bring picnics? How did they? I, I, I guess I'm just wondering. Like mm-hmm. a five hour affair, nothing to eat. There was there was a refreshment room. Um, I don't think the refreshments were very extensive. Sometimes you hear about oranges being served, um, but there was not meals served. Members of the elite often arrived late um, because they would eat. Their dinner hour might be at seven, and so they might be eating until nine thirty, even though the opera started at eight. Right. Um, and since the lights don't go up and down, you can just go in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh, I see. Yeah. Uh, now these lights, they were, of course, uh, they were actually uh, candles, and, and um, they were candles. Right. Mm-hmm. Did these mm-hmm. places? Did, <laughs> I was going to say there's probably a lot of smoking going on. I was just thinking, like, did they burn down a lot? I, you know, I, they did. The, the um, King's Theater burned down in 1789. 
Um, there was an alternative that was set up at the um, Pantheon Theater um, while the, the Opera House was being rebuilt. It burned down in 1792. Um, right. I, I see a pattern here. Uh, yeah, so yeah. theaters, they did, they did burn down, and, um, and there was a very large number of candles. They were quite well lit. Um, you could see other members of the audience yeah. pretty easily. I was wondering about just that, because you know, it puts so, much of the, the, so much of the spectacle seems to be seeing other people, and, uh, and in mm-hmm. a modern theater, you can't see anybody but what's on stage. So, right. uh, so you, you mentioned also, I was really interested in this, there were seats on stage. Is that right? So say, that, say that again? There were seats on stage? Yes, and there was, there was often seats on stage. So if the pit filled up and there wasn't room, they would just um, have members of the audience sort of overflow, both actually into the orchestra. They would actually sit where the orchestra was playing. You would put seats in the orchestra um, if there wasn't room, and then you would also put seats up on stage. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a number of stories of members of the audience who would actually kind of walk around on stage. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah they, I mean, it was not really often, but they would sometimes, you have sort of drunk dandies who are kind of wandering across the stage in the middle of performance. Um, one of the examples that I cite right in the beginning of the book is, um, I think it was in 1829, there was, um, I think it was the King's birthday, and so there had been a big levee at court, and all the women had come to the opera, which was only a, about a block away from the, the St. James Palace where the court met. Um, and all the women were in their court dress. And so some of the uh, women who were subscribers to the boxes were so interested in seeing the theater um, and everybody in their court dresses, they actually walked down um, during the interval onto the stage to get a view of, of what <laughs> they were really there to see, which was all the women in court dresses. Sort of puts a um, lie to the whole thing, doesn't it? Yeah, so there, there's really a sense in which um, you know, we tend to think of we have a sort of idea of the sort of separation between the stage and the auditorium. The, stage, the auditorium is where you sit to watch what's going on on stage, and what you're there to see is what's going on on stage. But there is very much the sense um, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries that, um, that the stage could sometimes be a place to actually watch the interesting spectacle in the auditorium, mm-hmm. um, and that you were there to see both what was going on in the auditorium and what was going on on stage. Mm-hmm. I see. So you mentioned a couple of things before we depart the uh, early, the Hanoverian era. I want to ask a couple of questions. One is about armed guards. There were armed mm-hmm. guards in these things? So there were armed guards. Mm-hmm. And they were there to prevent people from killing one to, another? or to keep, Well, to keep order. To keep order. Wow. Yeah, I suppose that that would be that would be prudent, I guess, to try to keep. Yeah, um, and then uh, uh, and in fact, your dress. You know, there was also people. The box keepers determined whether your dress was proper. That um, was my next question. Yeah, how, mm-hmm. and I've always had this question because um, I, I think of people going to the opera as uh, wearing what's called um, a black tie, and they often have swallowtail coats. Mm-hmm. How are they actually dressed in 1780? So it would have been what was formal dress back then. Um, so it would it was the black suit had not yet really um, emerged as kind of the standard clothing for men. That really is more the early 19th century. So, you know, kind of what you think of when you think of pictures that you've probably seen of the aristocracy in the 18th mm-hmm. century with their wigs, um, very brightly colored um, clothing, um, you know, pantaloons with silk stockings. Men wore high heels with sort of jewels on the shoes. Um, you know, very you know brightly colored sort of waistcoats with a, a jacket um, that you know probably had tails you know to some degree. Mm-hmm. 
um, and the women would have been in, in dresses that had, um, you know, kind of wide petticoats, which mm-hmm. was the sort of style in the 1780s, um, and, you know, very elaborate hairdos. This was, in the 1780s, was the kind of period where women's hairdresses right. uh, were, hair. you know, two feet in the air sometimes yeah. and decorated with um, bird's nests and all kinds of things. Um, so, and in fact, there was discussion about the fact that it was hard for them to sit in the boxes um, and, you know, the way that their headdresses or their hats got in the way of, of other people seeing. Um, wow. This sounds more and more like bars I went to in college. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I don't know if I had as much fun as they did, but uh, and alcohol was alcohol served? In the in the Mensa or whatever the uh, the, the snack room. Or? Yeah, you know, I don't have much information on exactly what was served in the refreshment rooms. Um, though my guess would be that it would be just sort of lemonade. I don't mm-hmm. think that alcohol was served, but um, your box was seen kind of as your private space. Um, mm-hmm. You kind of owned that box for the season, um, and so there are images of. Um, boxes with alcohol in them. Um, but I believe that would have been something that members of the audience probably brought with them mm-hmm. into their box. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this thing, the subscription uh, uh, method of distributing these things. Uh, what, what is that, how did it work? Um, so you, the at a certain point, the management would kind of give out notices for ladies to come collect um, the tickets for their boxes. So the head subscriber would come and get the six tickets for her boxes, mm-hmm. for her box. Um, and if she didn't want to keep that box for the next year, then there would be the opportunity to you know, let someone else subscribe to the box for that year. Um, and um, during the, the sort of 1790s was sort of the peak of um, interest in box subscriptions. So, you know, the number of people subscribing, I think, quadrupled um, between 1780 into the 1790s. Um, and so there was, you know, a huge, huge rage for the opera. And so pretty quickly waiting lists developed. And, you know, there was sort of three to four year waiting lists to even be able to get a box um, if you were interested. Mm-hmm. Now, could the box be used as a sort of trinket in patronage? Were you allowed to say Yeah. That? So, yeah, that's one of the interesting things that I, that I talk about is, um, so, you know, people subscribe, but they didn't really go every single performance. Um, and so they would often lend their box um, to other um, members of the audience, or other uh, friends of theirs. Um, and again, this was, you know, gave out information to those who were in the know who kind of paid attention. Oh, you know, look who's got so-and-so's box for tonight. Right. You know, that would tell you something about their, um, again, their sort of social networks. Um, so, for instance, you know, the Duchess of Devonshire, who was one of the major, she was the major Whig political hostess um, in the 1780s and 90s, um, when the um, Prince of Wales sort of illegally married Mrs. Fitzherbert, who was a Catholic, he wasn't allowed to marry her, um, she simply said, I refuse to be seen with her and to have her into my box at the opera, um, mm-hmm. because having someone, lending someone your box seats or having them in your box at the opera really was kind of a way of giving your stamp of approval on that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, you know, this develops in sort of interesting ways. And one of the things I talk about in the book is how the opera slowly becomes commercialized. Um, and when that process starts, it's not what we would expect. We tend to sort of associate commercialization with the rise of the middle classes. But um, uh, commercialization actually starts with the creation of a more open market for these tickets. Um, and that happens because... Um, I'll go into the details if you want, but but basically um, that alternative opera house that I talked about, the Pantheon, um, the noble backers of that theater 
um, invested huge amounts of money, the Duke of Bedford and the Earl of Salisbury, they lost it, that they lost their investment. Um, the Earl of Salisbury happened to be the Lord Chamberlain, who was the um, court official who had the right to give out the license to the theaters. Um, so he had the authority to decide which theater would get the license for Italian opera. And he basically told the manager of the King's Theater, which is the main Italian opera house, that he would only give him the right to that license if he would absorb the debts <laughs> from this alternative <laughs> opera house. Yeah. So the way that the um, William Taylor, the manager, um, raised money in part was by selling boxes uh-huh. as private property. Right. Um, and then he also sold... Um, sort of tickets, silver tickets that allowed you entree into the pit and the, the theater mm-hmm. um, for, you know, terms of like 15 or 20 years. And so what began to happen is that, um, you know, maybe you bought one of these property boxes and one season you were going to be in Paris and so you didn't want your box for that year. Um, the fashionable booksellers, the booksellers in the kind of fashionable West End began to basically fill this growing demand to resell those tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, and they began to... Um, you know, resell tickets, not just of the sort of property box owners, but also the regular subscription boxes. So it used to be if you were a subscriber, you didn't go one night, you know, you didn't happen to lend it out to a friend, your ticket just sat in your desk drawer. Um, But increasingly now, you could actually give that ticket to one of the booksellers and they would resell your ticket. Yeah, a.k.a. Um, a scalper. That's what it's we would sort of, like, of yeah. like that, isn't it? Yeah. But now it's really interesting the way that the system worked because the people who subscribed to a box all knew each other. Oh. And so you couldn't just allow a stranger to come sit into a box with the, uh, your friends. Right. And so when these box tickets were sold, unless, unless it happened to be a, a box holder who was, you know, giving away all the tickets to his box for part of the season, if it was just one ticket, um, it, it was basically resold on the understanding that you would only go into the pits mm-hmm. um, because the box ticket gave you a right to kind of circulate through the theater. Um, and so there's this great story um, that I found in a memoir that was written by Harriet Wilson, who was one of the high-class high courtesans of the time. And um, she comes into her box one day and discovers this group of um, men and women from the city. Um, and they're sitting in her box. And so she explains to them, this is my box. This is my own private property. You can't be sitting here. And they explain, well, we bought these tickets. And she was, in effect, used to disposing of you know, her extra tickets. Um, and so she, you know, she can't get them out. She calls the manager in to try to explain. She calls in the, the box keeper, and he tries to explain to them. And so finally she has to kind of tell them about her kind of wicked reputation. Um, and you know, once they realize kind of who she is, they, they finally leave the box. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's it, that is yeah scalping. <laughs> I was going to ask yeah. about it, but yeah, mm-hmm. that, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And it really, um, you know, as these outside ticket agents develop, I mean, it's one of the things that really changes the character of opera going um, because so much of the um, the opera's ability to kind of serve as this central meeting place where people could learn all this information about each other and where they could kind of put their sort of status on display um, centered around it being the subscription kind of culture at the opera. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, once you have um, 
people starting to buy only parts of a subscription. Um, and you yeah. start to have people not sitting in their same boxes from night to night or from season to season. It, it really begins to kind of change the whole character right. of the opera. Right. Once everybody is somebody, then nobody is anybody, if you know what I mean. Yeah, right. That. Yeah, the yeah. sort of dilution of, of, of status once the doors are opened. Um, yeah, I can, I, that, this is a pretty common phenomenon. I'm interested to see it at the opera, though. So I'd like to ask you to do the following, if it's okay. I'd like you to jump mm-hmm. forward mm-hmm. Uh, to 1880, which is when the book ends, and mm-hmm. take us to the opera again. What do we see then? Well, it's, you know, its character has completely changed. Um, and that change really happens from the 1820s to the 1860s. So, um, you know, what I can say for 1880 is, is you know, has already been developing for about a decade and a half. Um, and the change is pretty dramatic. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time skimming through hundreds and hundreds of um, letters and diaries um, trying to find references to the opera. And you see, starting in about 1830, this almost complete absence suddenly of discussions of conversations that, that people had with each other at the opera, almost complete absence of sort of court intrigue um, that was sort of typical in the early period. Um, people are no longer visiting. They're no longer making rounds of visits by the time we get to sort of the 1860s and 70s. Um, Fops Alley um, is gone. Um, men are no longer, they no longer have any place to go in the pit um, because what happened is that um, the management increasingly began building what were called stalls um, in the pit area. Um, and these stalls were reserved seats. Um, so the stalls, by the time you get to the 1860s, have taken over the pit area. And so um, you could no longer circulate. There were sort of reserved seats, and you couldn't just kind of wander around the way you used to be able to do. Um, so the lights are out. Um, people are not making visits to each other during the performance, maybe a little bit during the intermission. Um, conversation, when it does get reported, seems to be during intermission. People are not talking much during the performance, and it's not, I don't think it's the total silence that we get more in the 20th century. Um, it's, you know, there's some hushed talking, but certainly the ideal of listening quietly is there. Um, and the, um, I mean, slowly you even get a reduction in the number of boxes, um, and they start to be replaced with sort of stall seats um, that are more sort of facing the stage. Um, and so this whole sort of social scene that was there um, really kind of goes away. The opening night still is a big night for members of high society to all be at the opera, um, but it's no longer this kind of central social meeting place that's sort of really interconnected in with the kind of broader social and political lives of the elite. It, it, um, it has become something that is more about the entertainment itself. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because I was thinking of concert experiences I've had, seeing the same band in two locations, one of which was what's called open seating. Mm-hmm. So you just go in or there are no seats at all on the floor, and so mm-hmm. you can go mingle around. Mm-hmm. And then I'd see the same band where there was reserved seating. It's a very it's a, different scene. It's completely different, <laughs> it's right? Entirely you're different. not mixing. You're yeah, you're yeah, sitting no, quietly. It's entirely yeah. the same band. <laughs> yeah, it's an entirely right. different scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did we get from from A to B? How did we get from the Hanoverian uh, sort of raucous bar scene, as I called mm-hmm. it? You didn't, mm-hmm. you didn't say that. Let me make clear. I, I use that analogy uh, to what is something quite similar to what you'd see at Lincoln Center. Well, that was really the question that 
I wanted to answer. And um, it turned out not to be so easy to answer. My The sort of assumption that was out there in the literature, um, and there was not much written about audience behavior when I started this project, but the assumption that was sort of out there was that this was due to the rise of the middle class audience. Um, and that was sort of where I started off. That's what I thought my story was going to be. And um, the more carefully I looked at the evidence, the more I really realized that that was not the story. Um, and just to give you a couple of examples of some of that evidence, um, the areas that members of the middle class could afford actually shrink over the course of this period. Huh. So like I was just mentioning, um, the pit, which had been you know, affordable for a, a regular sort of middle class family, those, you know, by the 1860s, there's, you know, two rows of pit benches. Um, it's all been taken over by the orchestra stalls. And the orchestra stalls, they're very expensive. Um, you know, subscribing to them for the season is, you know, maybe 15, 20 pounds, um, which was, let's say, a middle class family makes... 300 pounds a year. Mm-hmm. That's a big chunk of their income. They really can't afford to subscribe. And even buying a stall um, for the night is going to cost you probably a pound. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas previously, it was you know um, more like half a pound um, to be able to get into um, the pit region. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens in the gallery. The gallery gets taken over with stalls that are these sort of reserved seats. So the gallery seats get more expensive. Um, and um, one of the other really interesting things that I discovered is that the number of sort of titled aristocrats sitting in the boxes, the proportion stays the same through the period from the 1780s up to the 1850s when we no longer have any subscription lists after that. Um, so there isn't really any really marked dilution of the audience. Um, and so I realized that the story really wasn't about changes in who was going. You know, there are, of course, some changes. The diplomatic corps is much more important in the 1840s and 50s than it had been in the 1780s, for instance. Um, you know, prostitutes don't go quite as much. Um, you know, some of the really active politicians are not going quite as often by the time you get to the 1840s and 50s. Mm-hmm. But it really wasn't a change in who was going that explained this transformation in audience behavior. Um, and so what I ended up arguing is that... I was going to say, you got me hanging here. Yeah. It's very suspenseful. <laughs> I can't really every word. <laughs> what I ended up arguing is that um, what largely explained it were changes in how the British elite put itself on public display. Um, and those were connected both to... Um, broader sort of political developments, in particular the passing of the Reform Act, and I can say a little bit more about this, but um, basically the kind of antics that they put on display, their kind of extreme exclusivity, their seeming kind of superficiality and concern with, you know, clothes and, you know, gossip and all these sorts of things, that that becomes much less viable um, after the passage of the Reform Act in 1832. So some of it is kind of outside pressure that forces them to um, rethink how they're putting themselves on public display. Part of it is the decline of this, this subscription culture that I've been talking about um, that comes from the creation of this more open market for um, tickets um, and from kind of a new crop of managers who um, gradually become much more oriented um, towards figuring out how 
how to draw more of a non-subscription audience. And that audience is nearly as wealthy as the subscribers themselves. Um, but once you have people not coming um, as often, suddenly you need a much larger number of people to be filling the theater every night. Mm. Right? You don't, when you have a subscription audience, you, know, you might only have um, you know, several hundred people who you can rely on to be there every night. When suddenly it's a non-subscription audience, you need to be filling hundreds of seats every single night with different people. Um, and so managers have to really rethink um, how they're marketing the opera um, and how to appeal more to a non- non-subscription audience. Um, so that's um, sort of two of the really important reasons um, that I think explain. And so what happens is as the British elite realize that um, that they're what happens in the kind of 18-teens and 1820s is you have the rise of a kind of political reform movement calling for um, greater, for basically for um, reforming the political system um, away from the kind of patronage um, structures that had, had kind of, with a kind of foundation of politicking in the 18th century um, and more towards um, opening up the political system um, to a greater number of people. Um, and I sort of, you know, argue by looking at um, kind of spoofs of fashionable society, spoofs of the opera, at the kind of very popular Silver Fork novels that came out in the 1820s, that basically attacks on fashionable society, which was that particular group of elites that come to the opera, um, that attacks on fashionable society really become kind of a symbol for the public of what's wrong with the nation as a whole. Um, and so the elite really begins, and they're led very much by aristocratic women, they begin to really put themselves on public display in new ways as we move into the 1830s and 40s. Um, and so rather than kind of using the opera to showcase their kind of status within society um, by, for instance, the number of men that might come to visit them, um, they really begin to orient their sort of status performances at the opera less towards each other, um, which had been a big part of what was going on in the early 19th century that I haven't talked too much about, but in the early 19th century, there's the composition of the British elite is in flux for all kinds of reasons. Um, and so there's a kind of reordering of status hierarchies and the opera, I think, becomes one of these places to really kind of firmly establish your status within fashionable society. So, you know, pre-1830, these status performances at the opera were really oriented towards other members of the elite audience. And what happens after 1830, I argue, is that um, the elite really becomes more oriented towards performing for the general public. Um, and so elite women really take the lead, and, and the way that they orient these status performances um, really centers on trying to show themselves to be exemplars of sort of propriety um, and sort of good behavior. Um, good morals, good behavior. Um, and so that's why um, talking um, becomes um, not the ideal, um, more sort of respectful sort of listening to the performance. 
Um, and so many of the kind of social dramas that happened um, at the opera in the earlier period now move more into the private realm. So, you know, these social dramas are still happening, but now they're happening at a private dinner, at a private ball. Um, you know, the whole tradition of public balls kind of dies away by the time you get to the 1830s. And so the elite basically moves a lot of these activities that had been public. And they now move them into the private arena. And um, they use public arenas like the opera more for kind of... I'm going to, for sort of showing the public that they're sort of worthy of being members of the ruling class, that they're someone that you might want to emulate. And I don't, I don't want to give the impression that they were super conscious about that, um, but that's sort of what ends up happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the opera then becomes a place where those who are interested, you know, this sort of expanding high society, those who are, you know, wealthy, you know, daughters of wealthy financers, uh, businessmen who are interested in kind of making their way into high society, they can come to the opera and kind of see, you know, well, what does a court levee look like? What are, you know, what is sort of proper etiquette? And the um, elite in their boxes become kind of models of that. Um, and that, of course, goes along with this, you know, new kind of behavior um, that um, does not involve all the socializing and that does involve much more sort of quiet kind of listening. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's just a lot. There's really a lot here. And it is an interesting uh, it's an interesting question as to why, um, I guess, self-presentation changed in this way, and, and it is somewhat curious given that the composition of the, the actually the audience does, doesn't really change that much. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, I, I'm I, I'm convinced by by what you say. Now you say they were ewing to a certain ideal of the way uh, the, someone a member of the ruling class would behave in public. Where did they get that ideal? Yeah, and, and let me just add like one little piece to that, which is that um, as I say, like I'm not sure. I don't have evidence that it was extremely Mm self-conscious on the part of the elite. So um, the other sort of piece of that picture, I think, to keep in mind is that because the subscription culture itself um, really deteriorates starting in about the 1830s, um, once you have opera boxes filled with lots of people who don't necessarily know each other, you can't really engage in the same kind of socializing practices that you had engaged in earlier. So I think the the kind of decline of the sort of subscription culture at the opera really is the kind of foundation for this new behavior. Um, And then, you know, kind of laid on top of that is this kind of new interest in, um, you know, showing the elite to be worthy of being the ruling class. Um, And, you know, there's other historians who've talked about this. So um, Linda Colley talks about the kind of reconstruction of the image of the the mostly aristocratic men in the early 19th century, trying to show themselves to be more of a service elite, um, sort of actively engaged in doing work for the country, um, either as sort of military officers, as um, members of parliament. and um, Judith Lewis looks at this for aristocratic women, and, and she talks about um, kind of a sort of shift from kind of the theater of the great, as she calls it, the kind of status performances among the elite to what she calls the theater of virtue, mm-hmm. um, in which you know at least a group of aristocratic women begin to... Um, you know, they're influenced by the evangelical revival, um, and they um, you know begin to take on a kind of a new persona, um, one that is more, um, 
shows himself to be interested in philanthropy, philanthropic activities, um, interested in moral virtue, um, has a greater sort of religious Christian sort of tenor to their behavior. Um, and um, so, you know, other historians have sort of talked about how there is, uh, there are these sort of attempts to reconstruct the image of the British elite. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm sort of adding to that picture by looking at how we see it in a public venue like the opera, which is sort of the last place you might expect to see it. Um, you know, it's the, the kind of place where the evangelical women won't come um, because mm-hmm. theater going was, you know, sort of prohibited um, if you were very religious. Um, and it's the place where, you know, the more fashionable types congregated rather than maybe the really serious um, politicians. Um, but even at the opera, you see this kind of reconstruction of the of the way that the elite puts itself on public display. Mm-hmm. Does the King's Theatre or some uh, later emanation of it exist today? Um, I think it. Yeah, I think it does. It's. Um, it's not called the King's Theatre anymore. It's, no. Um, I have no idea what it's called. I was just wondering. The reason I asked the question is I wondered if you'd actually been to see the opera in London. Yes, I have. Um, and <laughs> What's it like now? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of the theater. It's, it's where the Phantom Opera is is often performed, but it's not. It's no longer a main sort of opera house. It's I not see. the same building. Um, it was rebuilt in. Is a that much all they show form. there now? The Phantom of the Opera is that pretty much it? Well, that's at least I haven't been to London in a little while now, uh-huh. but that was that was what was at that particular theater. Um, it's in the Haymarket. Uh-huh. Um, no, the opera now. Um, mainly is at Covent Garden, um, which actually became an, a theater for opera during the period that I'm looking at. Um, in 1847, um, opera first started to be, Italian opera first started to be performed at the Covent Garden Theater, and there was this big rivalry between um, what became known as Her Majesty's Theater once Queen Victoria came to the throne, um, which is the opera in the, in the Haymarket, and the new Covent Garden Theater. Um, and so Covent Garden um, uh, is sort of the only theater from this period that performed Italian opera that is still in existence today. And, and so, yes, I have gone to see opera at Covent Garden. And what's it, what's it like now? Do you see, uh, is the queen there? I mean, do you see princes and lords? And I mean, is there any, is there any sort of echo of the things that you saw from either uh, 1780 or 1880? Um, yeah, there are a few boxes, not that many. Uh-huh. Um, it's... You don't see the queen there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's the only question an American can ask about these things. Yeah. Did you see the queen? I don't know. Um, you know, clearly there are, you know, some very well-to-do people there who um, have their own kind of dress circle. Um, and so, you know, if you were someone like me buying the cheapest tickets way at the top, you right. didn't have access to um, to those. Um, to the boxes or anything like that? And to, you know, the, um, the VIP refreshment seats. rooms. Oh, the refreshment, the refre- the refreshment yeah. rooms and things, yeah. I sort of have to expect you to say that Richard Branson owns it. That is the entire theater, but I, I suppose it's in the public trust somehow. Um, <laughs> yeah, not, uh, yeah, I'm not at the moment sure. I, have about, no, I, I really yeah. have no idea. Um, but, you know, there's been a wave of privatization in England, so it, it wouldn't surprise me. It um, was never owned by the government. Oh, really? Um, is that right? No, the, which is different than a lot of operas on the continent. Um, yeah. It was always privately owned um, and was never under the patronage of the king, per se, in 
in the kinds of ways that you would see on the continent. Um, so it was always much more of a commercially oriented enterprise in England than, than on the continent. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I just figured it was called, you know, the, the Queen's Theatre or, or Her Majesty's Theatre or whatever it was, and so it must have been the Queen's Theatre. Um, yeah, so uh, that, that colored me wrong. Uh, anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time, Jennifer, and I really appreciate it. It's a fantastic book, and I'd like to close the interview, if I may, with our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? Um, I guess two sort of smaller, you know, essay-length type of projects. Um, one is um, uh, it's for an edited book looking at how the idea of a canon applies to opera, um, because most of most of the scholars who've looked at the idea of um, the emergence of a, can- a musical canon have looked at instrumental music, and so this is kind of one of the first books to really try to see how did it, how did the idea of a canon develop in in opera um, from the 18th century on. So I am doing the essay on um, the 19th century in London, um, and so it'll be sort of part historiographical review um, and then part sort of new research. Um, and the thing that I'm really interested in. Um, and I may, I may never find my smoking gun of an answer that I'm hoping for, but I'm really interested in, there's, I haven't had much time to talk about that there's kind of a, the idea of an opera really changes over the course of this period. So then in the early period where I start in the late 18th century, there is no idea of what scholars call the work concept. So the idea of an opera as a kind of finished work of art mm-hmm. to be sort of revered um, by the audience who will kind of listen quietly, to be revered by the singers who will perform every all the notes as written, um, by the sort of directors who will not, you know, cut sections out. I mean, it was very popular in the 19th century to, you know, take arias out and put in arias from other operas, um, and singers had the um, authority to, to do that. Um, that idea really was not there in the early 19th century. Um, an opera was really seen as something that was changeable um, mm-hmm. and that you would adapt and alter for different performance contexts. Mm-hmm. And what interests me about that is that it's really quite similar to how um, we see notions of self-identity changing during this period. Um, so Dror Warman has written a book on the making of the modern self, and he sort of looks at how the self notions of self-identity in the 18th century are also seen as sort of essentially malleable. Um, there's little notion of a kind of bifurcated self in which we have this kind of true, deep, kind of fixed self inside and then this kind of outer persona. That that kind of sense of a bifurcated self isn't fair, that there was an expectation and a value placed on being able to change um, kind of who you were for different social contexts in order to be sort of pleasing to people. Um, and over the course of the 19th century, begin to have more of this sort of modern notion of the self that we still have today, which is, you know, there's sort of this true self inside and then you have this kind of outer persona, which is how you decide to kind of um, portray yourself to different people. Um, and the idea of um, an opera really goes through that same transformation. And so um, I suppose I'm interested in the idea of whether there's any connections between mm-hmm. those two. Um, and so because um, radical political reformers were those who were um, quite involved in the 1790s and early 19th century in um, attacking this older notion of the self, um, I'm, I've been looking at the Examiner, uh, which was a um, radical journal of the early 19th century, um, well known for its opera reviews, um, and trying to see if we see any of that 
political orientation and that sort of broader kind of attack on the kind of superficiality and artificiality of the elite, you know, to what degree do we see it affecting the way they're talking about opera? Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see whether I, um, what I can come up with um, as I as I kind of get further along in that research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it all sounds very fascinating to me. One thing I like about it is you have a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's always a good thing to have. Like, I believe X. We'll see if it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Many historians <laughs> don't work that way, I, mm-hmm. and I never can really understand it. Anyway, I'm, uh, I, I was very pleased to read this book, and I was very pleased to talk to you today. We've been talking with Jennifer Hall-Witt about her book, Fashionable Acts, Opera and Elite Culture in London, 1780 to 1880. Jennifer, let me say thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Jennifer Hall Witt about her book, Fashionable Acts, Opera and Elite Culture in London, 1780 to 1880. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.